Welcome. You may be seated. And man, it is so good to see you here today at Thornton Campus. Also, welcome to those of you who are watching online and at Fort Lupton Campus. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not met, I would love to meet you. Uh, feel free to reach out. I love coffee and I love lunch, as you can probably tell. So let's do that. All right. I want to get to know more of you. But um, man, we are uh, we are in a middle of a series today, uh, a middle of a five week series called I Can't Believe in a God Who. Now, the reason why we're doing this series is because we realize that with, uh, with a crowd of people this size, and for those of you who are watching online, that there's, uh, chances are there are several of you, hopefully, that are tuning in uh, who maybe haven't made that step yet of what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you haven't been able to put your faith in him. Right? So you might be looking at your own life and your own experiences or the world around you, and you just haven't really been able to, to, to come to a place where you say, man, I want to put my faith in him. And what you tell yourself is, I can't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank. What is that reason for you? There's, there's hundreds of reasons that have been thought about for, for thousands of years that smart, smart people who have put lots of thought into this come up with uh, oppositions uh, about putting their faith in Jesus. Well, since we only have five weeks for this series, we realized that we weren't able to do, uh, to, to cover all of the reasons. And so we wanted to pick some of the top five, some of the most common reasons that we've interacted with people uh, who, who, who can't put their faith in God. And so two weeks ago, Pastor Matt started off this series with this idea that I can't believe in a God who allows so much suffering in this world. I mean, you, you can't go a day without reading a headline or, or even experience in your own life some sort of suffering, right? I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Pain and hardship and, and sickness and, and evil in the world. And you think, man, how in the world can I put my faith in a God who says that he's all-knowing and kind and loving and all-powerful, yet allows so much evil and suffering in the world? That's what we talked about week one. Last week, we looked at this idea that uh, I can't believe in a God who doesn't answer my prayers, that I, I've earnestly sought God. I've got on my knees and prayed, and I've begged God for things, and, and it seems like my prayers just hit the ceiling and fall flat. Today, we're going to look at this idea that I, I, I can't believe in a God who I don't need. You know, I've made it this far. I've lived my life this long. I don't know that I actually need him, so I, I, I just can't believe in a God who I don't need. Next weekend, we're going to be looking at this idea that I can't believe in a God who has followers who are hypocrites. And then finally, I can't believe in a God who says there's only one way to heaven. So that's how we're going to close out the rest of this series over the next couple of weeks. And so today, as we look at this idea that I can't believe in a God who I don't need, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, if you want to turn there. And as you do, uh, you know, the word need is kind of a weird word. It's a strange word word, right? Because I can say that I need my coffee in the morning, and I can also say that I need uh, to pay my mortgage this month, right? And I mean, two needs, but like at different ends of the extreme in terms of importance. Now, some of you might take issue with that and say, no, no, no. Like, if I don't get my coffee in the morning, there is no sense in trying to pay my mortgage because things are just going to go badly for everybody, right? And you probably have your coffee right now with you, okay? So that, that's, that's okay. That's good. But, but need is a little bit of a weird word. And as I began to think about this idea of what does it mean to, to need God, I, I thought of this illustration uh, of a parachute. Now, 
Uh, Before I say this, this could be a totally terrible illustration. You decide. Uh, But I thought maybe it would help... um, Maybe it would help us understand this idea, because really all illustrations that whenever we use illustrations in our sermons, every single one of them, uh, they only go so far, right? You can't take it to, uh, to a total extreme. It only goes so far. Every single one of them falls short, so you decide. But as I thought about this, I thought about a parachute, and I thought, okay, I don't need a parachute. Um, and so when it comes to not needing a parachute, uh, there, there's, three, there's three camps of people. Right? The first camp are the, the people who say, look, I have no need for a parachute, not because I have anything against parachutes. I don't have, if you want to use a parachute, that's fine, but I don't have any plans on jumping out of a perfect, perfectly good airplane. Which, by the way, how many of you have ever used a, a parachute, like jumping out of, wow, all right, just a, in the first serve, his, it was like a ton of people. I was amazed. I was like, wow, you guys are kind of crazy, but good for you. That, that's great. I don't have anything against parachutes. If you want to have a parachute and use one, that is fine. Like, you do you, I'll do me. I don't have any plans. I don't have any need for it. So I just don't need a parachute. The second camp is this, are those who say, well, yeah, okay, I'll buy a parachute, but I'm going to keep it sort of off to the side. I'm going to keep it in my closet, and then I'm only going to break it out and use it like whenever it's, whenever it's necessary, right? So if I go on a really long flight over the Atlantic, then maybe I'll take it with me, although I don't know how well that would work. I don't know that you can get out of those big planes with a parachute anyway, but, but you see my point. Um, so I'm going to buy one, but when it comes to my everyday need of it or even use of it, I'm just not going to use it. In fact, most days I'm not even going to know that it's there. I'm going to let it be in the closet, sort of out of sight, out of mind. The third camp are those who say, you know, I've been there, done that. I bought a parachute. I used it, and it let me down. Not let me down like it's supposed to let you down, but like it let me down. It it didn't meet my expectations, which is interesting because if it didn't meet your expectations, you probably wouldn't be here to tell us about it. But you can see my point. So I've been there, done that. I bought a parachute. It didn't work right. I was promised one thing and something else was delivered. And so I'm going to sort of wipe my hands of that and I don't need a parachute anymore. So let's apply that then to our need for God. So for those who don't, who say, man, I don't need God. I've lived my life long enough. I don't need him. There's three camps and it's the same three camps. Those who say, look, I don't have anything against him. I don't have anything against those who follow him. I don't have anything against you if you want to believe in a God, but I simply just don't feel the need to. I can do this on my own. The second camp are those who say, man, I, I, yes, I, I believe in a God, and I prayed the prayer. 20 years ago, I prayed the prayer. I even attend a church most of the time. I sometimes serve, or I sometimes give, or I sometimes do this or that, but But really, if you took an honest look at yourself, your need for God is sort of hiding off in the closet. You know what I'm saying? Like most days you can go without actually needing him for anything. In fact, you know this if you go, uh, if you go a day or two and it's like, oh man, I haven't, I haven't talked to God or I haven't read his word or I haven't spent any time with him. Well, that's what I mean. It's like, I, yes, I believe in God. I just don't functionally need him on a daily basis. Like I can pretty much do my life without him. And then the, the third camp is this, are those who, who've been there, done that. Maybe you were raised in the church 
Maybe you believed at a young age. Maybe you, uh, you bought in and, and you uh, got baptized and you started learning about faith and, and, and you worked really hard. But then a crisis happened, a crisis in life. And, and you had this idea that, man, this isn't supposed to be how it's going. This is not how it's supposed to be. Therefore, God must have let me down. So as a result, I'm done. In fact, this group, the third camp, is a growing number of people. The duns, the ones who have left the church. I'm done. I just washed my hands of it. And I'm wondering today that if, if you find yourself in one of those three camps. And if you do, I want to I encourage you because, one, you're not alone. Two, I'm really, really glad that you're here. And I say that sincerely. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're tuning in because... This is a place where you don't have to have all the answers. This is a place where you don't have to have any fears or doubts or questions or challenges that you can bring those, that God is big enough for those. But here's my question to, the, to you. For those of you who are in one of those camps, here's my question. Would you be willing to consider that you have an intrinsic need for God, that is like a built-in need for, for God, and that that need is greater than any other need. Would you be willing to consider this idea that you and every single person has a built-in intrinsic need for God and that that need is bigger than any other need? So with that question, we are going to look at this story in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 17. If you've already turned there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background about what's going on here. You see, at this point in Jesus's life, it's kind of toward the end of his ministry. In fact, it's right before uh, he, he starts, he gets arrested and tried and all of that. And, uh, and, and people are not only gathering around to hear what he has to teach about, but they're also starting to get a little skeptical. Like, who is this guy really? Who is this guy and what is he saying? Because sometimes what he has to say, I'm just not sure that it's right. or I'm just, I'm just not sure what to think about it. So who is this guy really? So, there, so Jesus starts teaching. This huge crowd gathers around, but many of them with sort of these skeptic ideas. And, and, and then all of a sudden, before we get into verse 17, all of a sudden these kids come running up to Jesus. And I can just imagine the disciples sort of playing like secret service, right? Like, hey, Peter, do you see the red-headed kid? Yeah, intercept him, you know? And Peter's running over here like, stop, stop, stop. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the kids come to me. And then he says this in verse 17. He says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see here, Jesus sort of drops this bomb. He's like, these kids that everybody's trying to keep away from me, by the way, if you don't uh, receive the kingdom like these children, you're actually not going to enter it. And you can just sort of imagine the gasp that happens across the crowd. And this young man, this ruler, is brave enough to ask the question that everybody else was asking. Well, then how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus answers in verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and then he lists off a few. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth, from when I was a kid. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, 
Well, there's one thing that you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now here, this rich young man comes to Jesus and asks this question. Now, to be rich in this time, in this culture, in this setting, was viewed as being blessed by God. That if you were rich, if you had all of your necessities met all the time, that if you had plenty of everything, that that was viewed as blessing from God. That you've done good things, that you've uh, lived your life in a good way, that God has then rewarded you with these blessings. This is what it means for this man to be rich. And when, so when Jesus says, go and sell everything, when Jesus says, go and sell everything and follow me, that he still lacks one thing. You see, this is something that this man, this man has never heard. What do you mean I lack one thing? I don't lack anything. My resume is full of good works. I've been doing the right thing since I was a kid. I've obviously been blessed by God because look at all that I have. Jesus says, sell it all and follow me. Now, does this ring a bell? A bell? Does this ring a bell when, when, when Jesus says, follow me? It was the disciples, right? When, when Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee or walking by Matthew's tax booth, he, says, he said, follow me. And what happened? How did they respond? They dropped what they were doing and they followed him. Why? Because it was an incredible opportunity for them to, to, to not only have a new life and learn from this rabbi that was sort of shaking things up, but they knew, they knew that in this opportunity that something incredible was about to happen. That is, how, that is why they dropped everything that they were doing and followed Jesus. And so here Jesus gives the same invitation to this rich young man. Come and, and follow me. So if you haven't read up, if you haven't read this whole story yet, you get to this point and you're like, oh man, what is he going to do? Is he going to respond like the disciples did and drop everything and go sell everything and come follow Jesus? What is he going to do? Picking up in verse 23, it says, When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. When it says that this man was very sad because he was very rich, it's sort of a play on words. And what it, what it means here is that he wasn't just sad, like kind of bummed, like, oh, I'll go think about it. No, he was, he was crushed with grief. He was afflicted with grief. His whole world sort of came crushing down in that moment. Why? We think, why? It's just things. It's just possessions. Well, there were more than just possessions for this man. There were more than just possessions. It was really his treasure, you see, it was in his good works and in his things where he not only trusted and treasured, but it was really where he found his identity. What Jesus was asking him to do was to actually lose part of who he was. You want me to do what? This is, this is who I am. I don't know that I can go down that road. That's why he was crushed with grief. And he saw this invitation to follow Jesus as actually as a step backwards. I can just imagine in his mind going, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, look at what I've done. 
Look at what I've done ever since I was a kid. Like, I've done all the right things, and, and I'm rich, meaning God has blessed me. And, and, and look at all that I've done. And this is the same sort of thought process that we see today. Maybe, maybe you're there. Whether you're a religious person or, or not, that it's easy for us to sometimes place our trust in ourselves and in what we can do and what we can accomplish. I mean, look at my life. I can, I, I've lived a pretty good life. I, I, I've done a lot of good things. Like I love my wife and I'm a pretty good dad and I, and I can do this and I, and I don't kill anybody and I, and I certainly don't steal a lot of things. And, and like I, I've, I've done a pretty good, I've had a pretty good life. I'm generous. And Jesus simply points out, that's great, but you're lacking. It's not enough that riches and good works leave you lacking. So one of the things he says about riches here that can sometimes trip us up, and it certainly tripped up this crowd, he says, look, it's easy for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What, is this, what does he mean by this? Well, he doesn't mean that to be rich is a sin. That's not what he means, which is actually good for us, because whether you think you're rich or not, like compared to the rest of the world, we have it pretty good, all right? We're considered rich when we compare uh, ourselves to the whole rest of the world. He's not saying that it's a sin to be rich. What he is saying is this, is that when you have all of your needs met all the time, it's hard then to see your spiritual needs. That's it. That's what he means. When all of your needs are met all the time, when, when you live your life in a way where you have abundance of everything and you never feel that lack of anything, it's hard then to see your spiritual needs. On the flip side, the less you have, the more obvious all of your needs are. Here's how I think about it is like my fingers. I have all 10 of them still, which I'm grateful for. I love my fingers, right? They work well. It's amazing what you can do with an opposable thumb right? You can open jars and you can do lots of things with your fingers. But here's the thing. I never ever wake up in the morning and go, oh man, I really need my fingers to work today. Like that would just be a weird thought, wouldn't it? Like I really need my fingers to work today. Like please work today. No, no, no. I just wake up and I assume that they're going to work. And so when I go and I open up the toothpaste, I don't even think about it. I just do it, right? So my needs are always met with my fingers until you get a paper cut then you're well aware of your need for your fingers, right? Because then you're opening up the pickle jar and it's like, ooh, that kind of hurts, right? And then you get pickle juice in your paper cut and then it's even worse. You see, my point is this, is that when all of our needs are met, we don't really notice our needs, but it's when we start lacking in some way, when, when there's some sort of pain there, when there's some sort of draw, like I need something, that is when we become well aware of our needs. This is what Jesus is saying is, look, when you're rich, just beware, because when you're rich and you don't have any needs, you easily forget your need for God. And then he goes on and he talks about how his good works are simply not enough. This guy produces his resume like, Jesus, I'm a shoe in. I've done all these things since I was a kid. I have it all together. And, and here's this idea that that I'm a good person, I do good things, and I have a good family. I don't need God to be a good person. Have you ever heard that? Or maybe you know somebody in your life, at work, or, or in your family, who, who lives a pretty good life, but they're not followers of Jesus, that, that I don't need God to be a good person. 
Well, this is a problematic statement for, for, for two reasons. One, if you think this, if you think that you can be good without God, you're simply not aware of your own brokenness. You're just not aware of how broken and sinful you really are, which actually is, is not a popular idea today, right? Because in today's world, in today's culture, you know, we don't use the word sin because that's offensive. We can, we can use the word mistakes, right? Because that's a little bit softer. Uh, and if you feel guilty about something, then maybe you just need to release yourself from those oppressive rules. Maybe you just need to change the standard that if you are, are weighed down by guilt or something and you feel like you've done something wrong, then just change the standard. Just do what you want. You be you. You believe what you want. You do what you want. You be who you want to be and do whatever you want to do. And, and, and no one can say that you're broken or sinful or, mis or make mistakes or anything like that. That's the first reason that you're just simply not aware that, man, when I look into my heart, there's dark corners there's cracks in my character. There's, there's sinful places in my life. Like, I'm deeply broken. The second reason is this, is that maybe you realize that. You realize that you're broken and sinful, and so you work really, really hard at doing good things. You work really, really hard at, at trying to make up for it. And, it. and it becomes this idea that if I do more good things than my bad things, then, then it, my good things will outweigh m the bad things, right? And the, in the end, that if there is an afterlife, if there is something beyond this, that hopefully the scale will tip in the right direction because I've lived a pretty good life. But here's the thing, is that this always leaves you wondering, doesn't it? Which way have the scales tipped? And here's the other problem with this, is that to say that you're good enough or that you can do good things according to which standard? Because if there's no God, then there's no standard of good. So typically what people say when, they're, when, they're, uh, when they say there's no God, but I can be good, it means just I'm just, I'm just better than this other guy. I'm not as bad as this other person that you read about on the news. You know, I'm not as bad as these other people. But when it comes down to it, when there, if there's no God, there's no standard of good. There, there, there is none. C.S. Lewis who was an atheist and set out to disprove the existence of God, and in doing so, found faith in Jesus. He said it this way, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a, crooked, a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? You see, in other words, if I don't believe, if I don't need God because I can be good on my own, it's a logical fallacy. Because without God, there is no real standard of good. And even if for a moment we entertain the idea that you could be good without God, if there is no God, why be good? If there's no God, why try so hard to be good? 
If there's no God, if there's no divine accountability, who's checking the scales? Why not just live life however you want, do whatever you want, no matter what anybody says, why try to be good if there is no divine accountability? When I was talking with Doug Schmidt about this, he said this. He said, in my opinion, the philosophers Nietzsche, Sard, and Camus are the only honest representations of atheism out there. Because they understand uh, that if God did not exist in their worldviews, that life and goodness were utterly meaningless. You see, you can't say with any sort of intellectual honesty that, that I don't need God because I can be good on my own. And it's often the people who think that that are the same people that say that religion is so oppressive and restrictive. Right? Right, that, that I don't need religion to tell me what to do. I don't need those uh, organized rules. And da, da, da. But, but here's the thing, is that this worldview is actually way more oppressive and restrictive than Christianity. Because living under this worldview that you have to produce your own goodness, and not only produce your own goodness, but you have to keep track of what is good and what is not good, this, is, this becomes this huge weight. But the true Christian realizes that number one, they are deeply flawed and sinful, and number two, that there's nothing they can do about it. Do you see the difference? That I'm broken and there is nothing I can do about it. Do you remember what Jesus said in verse 27? He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so when we take an honest look at how deeply flawed we are, that, that when I stop and, and peer into the darkness of my own heart and at the same time realize that it's impossible for me to do anything good on my own, that is the point where I see my need for God. Do you see it? That he is the ultimate need a built-in, intrinsic need that every single human being has for their creator that nothing else can fill. It's an everyday need. Not just a need that, uh, not that he's just a means to an end, but that he himself, the creator, is our need. And, and in him, we get to experience the, the fullness and every need satisfied. Is that you today? Are you at that place or maybe you haven't realized your need for God. Maybe it just felt like a bunch of rules or a bunch of tradition or whatever. And maybe you're at a place where you realize those two things. The depths of your sin and your inability to do anything about it. The good news is that the story doesn't end there. The good news is that God, who is perfect, he does not look at himself and see sin and dark corners of his heart. He is absolutely pure and perfect, and he is self-sacrificing. And the good news is this, is that while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. He died in your place. He died in my place. That is the message of Christianity. That is why we need God. Again, not as just a one-time prayer, prayer thing, but an everyday, God, I'm broken. God, nothing I can do today is even close to being good enough. I need you, God. I need you. And guess what? He meets you there. He meets you there with forgiveness and love and mercy. And if that's you today, 
If you're ready to, to take that step, to make that decision to follow Jesus, that invitation that he gave to this man and to us, we want to walk alongside you in that. We want to answer any questions you might have. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. All you need to do is simply text the name Jesus to this number on the screen and that someone will be in touch with you about what that looks like. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we confess that we need you. God, for many of us, that means that we confess that we have forgotten about you. We, we've sort of left you in the closet and we only pull you out when it's necessary or a crisis that comes our way. God, for others of us, we confess that we need you for the very first time. And for others of us still, we confess that we thought we, we, thought we had faith in you and, and we were let down for some reason and we're ready to come back. God, we confess that we need you today. So God, would you meet us here? Would you meet each of us where we are at? Father, that we would see our need for you and that, and that we would open up the doors for you to come in and meet those needs. God, we thank you for it. And we thank you for your love, your grace, your self-sacrificing character. God, that you would come and die in our place. Jesus, we thank you and we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Every weekend here at Crossroads Church, we take the bread and the cup, and as we partake in communion together, and we do this as a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave thanks and he passed it around to his disciples and he said, whenever you eat of this bread, remember my, my body that's been broken for you. Let's remember together. And the cup, Jesus took it and gave thanks for it and passed it around. And he said, whenever you drink of this cup, remember my blood shed for my enemies. The sufficiency of God, the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Let's remember together. Friends, we're going to go ahead and stand and respond to God's goodness and faithfulness with singing. Would you stand together?